This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast weekend edition available on all good podcasting networks and at territorystory.com. My name is Peter Gowers. I'm flying solo this week as far as the podcast is concerned, but our special guest is joining me as he does each week. For weekends with Walshy, the NT Independent Online Editor, Mr. Chris Walsh. G'day, Walshy. How are you, mate? Hey, I'm good, Peter. How are you doing? Pretty good. I got a bit tongue-tied there. I wasn't too sure without uh, having my mate to talk to first. <laughs> yeah, it seems like something's missing there, right? It, it does. It does. Yeah. How's the week been in Clowntown, my friend? Yeah, it's been, um, uh, you know, same craziness. We seem to be busy every day. That never ends. There's always something... Uh, always something that we have to put off for a little while until we can get around to it. And uh, anyway, but we get all these things out. The stories keep happening. They keep coming fast and curious. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, let, let's get into it. We've got uh, a number of interesting things to talk about as we do each week. But um, first story on this podcast is related to a public servant who uh, is entitled to potentially more than $40,000 and high duties back pay after a Fair Work Commission decision. Tell us about this. Yeah, well, I think we were talking about it last week, weren't we, that um, there was, uh, well, they can overpay their employees, the public service here. and yes, they can apparently they can. Yeah, five millions maybe. And uh, here we have uh, a public servant who was underpaid by about $40,000. Uh. Look, all of this, I mean, it's just a huge embarrassment for, uh, you know, the Public Employment Commissioner, Vicki Telfer, who once again, you remember when they couldn't get the contract signed properly, yes. the enterprise agreement with. Yes, yes. I mean, here, here's just another issue that's come up. So what had happened here in this particular case is that uh, this um, woman who was working for Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics uh, had, I guess, taken this action. Uh, in the Fair Work Commission against the government, claiming that, uh, well, and in fact, the commissioner found that uh, she had been paid at an AO5 level for three years, but was working at an AO6 level. Uh, so I guess the ruling here and the determination was if an employee is performing the work of a higher grade, then they should be paid at that higher grade. He ordered that uh, Maria Rust be back paid as an AO6 from 2018. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, Darwin, I think, you know, well-known, uh, industrial relations consultant, Lucio Matarazzo had represented the woman in, uh, in the Fair Work Commission. Uh, he had said that it was estimated that she'd be entitled now to a gross amount of 43575 based on annual underpayments of more than 14000 Uh, yeah, so where it went on here to the, to, um, I guess, reveal all of the, the, the different jobs that she was actually doing here in Dipple. And Dipple's an interesting little little place that they got running there. Comes up a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. And so she was, uh, uh, what was it? Further said, Miss Rust had been employed in an AO4 position and picked up extra duties when an AO7 colleague transferred out of the area. A job analysis questionnaire was assessed against the role in 2018 and valued evaluated her position to be AO6, but her project manager reviewed the situation and found there was not sufficient money in the budget for Russ to be paid at the AO6 level and remove functions and duties from the role to have it reevaluated as an AO5 position. However, they, you know, the woman kept 
working and doing that role and the duties remained unchanged, right? So here they are trying to save a couple bucks, a couple of measly bucks off the back of a public servant, of one public servant. I mean, Tipple is out of control here with the with their spending and what they're, you know, and then they think they can save what fourteen thousand a year by screwing over an employee. Yeah. So I, I, I worked it out to be roughly uh, at fourteen thousand dollars a year. I worked it out to be roughly two hundred and seventy dollars per week. Over three years, that's how you get to your 43000 or whatever it is. Yeah. So how does this play out? Because is the employee agitating for this for three years or? Yeah. yeah. So she took, she took them. I'm not sure how long. That's one thing that wasn't in the start here. It was just how long it took once she realized that and took it through fair work. I would imagine it took probably more than a year. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to see if there was anything else here. Uh, so uh, Lucio Matarazzo wrote on behalf of Ms. Rust to Infrastructure Planning and Logistics Chief Executive Andrew Kirkman on November 5th to resolve the matter, but he did nothing. Uh, wow. Sounds like Andy That's Kirkman. a familiar name. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got bigger problems on his hand than this, to be honest. So uh, yeah, he may have been a little preoccupied with some other stuff going on in his department and I'm not, yeah, the least of which I'm referring is they're under investigation by the ICAC for letting people into an unsafe building, and that being the DIO oh, Stadium. right. Okay. Yeah. And That's what I've heard the name. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there, there's all kinds of other stuff. And you'll hear the name again. It's just the months go by here. Uh, it's going to get interesting over there at Dipple. And here's the woman who was uh, preparing documentation, who was... Uh, uh, what was she doing? Preparing reports for Andy Kirkman and the minister, managing contracts with external contractors and undertaking regular financial reviews by managing cash flows for project managers in the department. They decide, yeah, we're going to, we'll take, we'll make some savings off of her bag and make her do the work. That's just unbelievable. They're just so unorganized here. And I don't know why Vicki Telfer's employment commissioner wouldn't have done something at some point, but then you let it get to this point where it has to go to fair work and, uh, and then the rulings against the government. So, yeah. So let me just, uh, I I don't want to put you on the spot here, but what sort of money would an AO5 get paid versus an AO6? Jesus, man, I I have no idea. Okay. Not up on that. It's just Uh, at at 270 bucks a week, like that's a significant shortfall in, in a weekly pay packet. So you you would notice, you would think. Um, so yeah, but anyway, this went on for, yeah, for three years, I guess I said. So yeah, anyway, that's, uh, one for the little guy, I guess, in this whole thing. And, uh, the government should, should know better and find real savings because like I said, I mean, we were seeing things where, you know, looking back three years ago when the uh, Langelon report came along, um, what's been done to really save money that been nothing but spend more money. And now they think, uh, you know, yeah. saving a few grand on an employee. Yeah. I don't get it. I would like to see some real reforms there in terms of savings in the departments and not like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, as we talked about last week with the the uh, overpayments that had gone on, yeah. um, you know, it, it how hard is it to pull out the uh, federal government little chart that tells you if they earn this much, then this is what the tax is? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't get it. I Yeah, just completely disorganized. Another example. All right. Look, let, let's move on to the next story and something we've been talking uh, a fair bit about. 
the last few weeks. And look, I'm sure we're going to continue to as as things unfold. But um, uh, this is based on the the Zach Rolf murder charge that, of course, we we know about, and and he was um, uh, found not guilty of a, a few weeks ago. Uh, the DPP recommended the Rolf murder charge in a 90-minute unfinished brief of evidence, according to notes from a meeting. Yeah. So, yeah, well, these yeah were notes that, like we reported last week, where um, we showed from, I think it was five different investigators from their notes involved in the investigation into the shooting death of Kumanjai Walker and whether or not they were going to charge Zach Rolf. So five investigators last week from notes we went through uh, showed that Jamie Chalker, you know, was most likely involved with all kinds of with all kinds of meetings there. He was he played a, a role in it. Uh, and that was contrary to those public statements he made where he claimed that he wasn't uh, involved in a part of any meetings is what he said. I haven't been a part of any meetings. And we, well, we've got these investigators and I was putting you there and saying that you were. And in fact, that he was involved on every single day since the shooting had happened, even the Sunday before mm-hmm. so the shooting happens on the Saturday night, even that Sunday before he's sworn in. Yeah. As the police commissioner, he's involved in a meeting about it. And then on Monday, he's, he sends it to the ICAC for unsatisfactory conduct or misconduct. Rolf, how did he know that? He needed some sort of evidence. Somehow he had this. That was his first day. And then you had Tuesday and Wednesday that he was also involved. And including on the Wednesday <laughs> where you had a meeting uh, that, that Jamie Chalker was involved in with executives and police. And then directly after that meeting, 15 minutes later, the detectives are called in and told to arrest Rolf for murder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to say that he, he wasn't involved. Uh, but what is just, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even, we, we don't even understand why the man came out to say he wasn't involved. He's police commissioner, you know, he had told yeah. the Australian back in 2020, we're going to make sure that this case is strong and uh, withstands the rigors of, uh, of a criminal trial. So he's saying then that he's involved, and now all of a sudden he's saying he's not involved. But yet these minutes, there these these notes from meetings show that, uh, yeah, that he he may have been misleading the public on that, and yet he still remains in the role. He's under investigation by the ICAC. Uh, he's misled the public, and you know nothing's happening. Gunner's still backing him, and everything's sweet in yeah. that world. Uh, but now what, what the notes also showed from the investigators was a deep concern uh, amongst them that the brief of evidence that was given to the DPP to either recommend or agree to a murder charge uh, was incomplete, that, it, that the brief of evidence itself was rushed. A number of the investigators have put in, in the brief of evidence that they wanted that noted. Yeah, that not everything had been completely checked and investigated, and at, at this point, because you know that's on the Wednesday, the shooting happens on the Saturday, and by the Wednesday, um, yeah, the DPP agrees and to to charge him with murder, and he's then arrested. So the detectives are also saying, look, it was it was an incomplete brief of evidence, uh, and it took less than ninety minutes. Uh, for the DPP to determine that the most serious charge that we have. Uh, mm. would, would apply and that they would do this. So, um, you know, it, it, it raises some serious questions here and whether or not, you know, what they looked at exactly. So we know that they saw the body worn video footage. Yeah. So we, we know that. Uh, but what else was in there? What else was in that brief evidence that they were rushing to, to put together? Uh, yeah. So you remember we went to 
the current director of public prosecutions, Lloyd Babb. We asked him questions about, uh, uh, detailed questions about the DPP's involvement and how this all went down from their side. I think, yeah, last week I was talking about that, that this is what we were going to do this week. And that's what we've done here. And, uh, so they come back. The, the, now keep in mind that the director of public prosecutions who, who recommended this charge along with the deputy director of public prosecutions. So the director was, uh, a guy named Jack Krzyzewski. Uh, the deputy director was a guy named Matthew Nathan. Now, Nathan seems to have taken the lead on this. Now, everyone knew that Krzyzewski was, uh, I, I think by that point, was on his way out, was was retiring, and then Matt Nathan was taking over, the heir apparent. Uh, so he kind of led that in some internal emails that I've seen um, were directed towards him more than the director. Anyway, now they both left, right? They both resigned uh, yeah. just weeks out from the original trial date. So make of that what you will. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we get a new DPP and a guy named uh, Lloyd Babb. So he's the one who has to take these questions from us. He said in an email that uh, uh, seeking of advice by police prior to the laying of a murder charge in the NT is standard procedure and dealt with as expeditiously as possible. So right. he's saying, you know, I think the question there was, why did it only take 90 minutes to determine the charge before all the evidence could be collected? And if, and, and the second part of that question was if, and if the police top brass had pushed it, you know, that they were saying, we want, we want this, will you agree to this murder charge? And he said that, you know, seeking of advice by police prior to the laying of a murder charge in the NT standard procedure and dealt with as expeditiously as possible. However, as we report, the police diary notes from November 2019 show at least five detectives investigating race concerns about what they said was the highly unusual involvement of the DPP before an investigation was finished, the speed at which the charges were being considered, and the handing over of an unfinished brief of evidence as the basis for a decision on potential charges, including that most serious of all charges. Uh, and look, these are the guys who deal with this. Yeah, you know, every day they're they're in there. They know the process, and when they're raising flags, saying something's not right here, I think that we all have to ask that question: Well, what the hell's going on? Um, now, of course, yeah. And now we also understand from sources that that Krzyzewski and Matthew Nathan from the DPP, when they were in that meeting, they were made aware of the detectives' concerns that was in the unfinished brief of evidence. Yeah, they, they again decided, now let's, let's pursue this as a murder charge. So then we know that the ICAC is investigating allegations of improper conduct relating to the procedures followed between the shooting and the uh, arrest and charging, including political interference. Uh, yeah, so, you know, this just, it just continues to raise more questions of what actually happened here. You know, they set up this operation. It seemed that they wanted that charge. They wanted, you know, somebody to be held accountable. Consequences will flow. We'll get back to Gunner's famous lines there. And, yeah. you know, the day after he says that, he's that, done. That was misinterpreted, though, Chris. <laughs> I, I don't know any other way <laughs> to take that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so look, uh, yeah, these questions are still hanging out there. Chalker's done nothing to to really answer them or get rid of them, except mislead the public more on his involvement. And Gunner, you know, he's not saying anything really about it at this point, just saying that he's backing the commissioner. But yeah, these, th this brief was clearly rushed, wasn't done uh, as full 
as it should have been. And these detectives had called that out and said, yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is very suspicious and strange. So we know that much at that point. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the story here and other things. I mean, we, we reported a lot of this the week before, but, um, putting it all together that it was only a 90 minute, uh, and it was called a, a short brief, um, just cause they yeah. just didn't have enough and they knew they didn't have enough, but yet the DPP agrees to pursue the charge. So then they set up an operation, a task force called operation Charwell. Um, they put investigators on that and this is with the sole purpose of, uh, building the murder case against Rolf. So it wasn't that it was set up Charwell to determine the death of Kumanjai Walker, what happened there. This was an internal investigation set up to prove that Zach Rolf murdered Kumanjai Walker. Right. And that gets interesting, I think, because at what point did they then exclude, you know, looking at any other avenues and what they had determined? The charge had been laid this quickly. Then the investigation just becomes solely about proving the charge instead of collecting evidence and deciding where that evidence goes, you know? Um, because if they had enough here and they, they looked at it all and they talked to experts, let's say real experts, they may have come back and said, look, there really isn't enough. Now, the other thing that I had asked the PP that he didn't respond to the current one was, uh, you know, I, I was in one of the, the investigators notes that, uh, I believe he put it that it was the prima facie case. Right. And the question that I put to the PP was, well, do you, is it, you know, not a fact that you don't do it on a prima facie case, but on the reasonable chances of conviction, reasonable prospects of success in this case, in which case, like they, they would have known had they seen that video that, that they're not going to give conviction here. They're not yes. going to get a conviction because that's self-defense right there. And the defense was part what Rolf did. And that's clearly what the judge or the jury found on, on March 11th. Now, the other part here, and I just kind of left that hanging out there until we got back to it this week, was he'd said, uh, he had also said, sorry, the DPP, they didn't answer a lot of those detailed questions, by the way. But yeah, it didn't answer that question of whether it was based on prospects of successful conviction. He said the matter was committed for trial by a local court judge following a contested committal. Mr. Babb said the local court judge found there was a case to answer. So we're going to we're, we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit more as we go along. And you see the story that we ran yesterday. Yeah. Kind of gets into that. Right. So at this committal stage, which I think was September 2020, again, close to a year after the incident, uh, the committal happens and the prosecution puts forward two kind of star witnesses, two key witnesses um, for the prosecution. One of them was a detective. Uh, actually, it wasn't a detective. It was a sergeant um, by the name of Andrew Barham. And the other guy was a criminologist, sociologist with the University of South Carolina in the United States, a guy named Jeff Alpert. So these guys both came out and said, in the committal, they said, look, Rolf, uh, the first shot was fine. The second and third shots were excessive and unnecessary and unreasonable. And this is where they hung the case. Remember, the trial was based around the second and third shots. So the judge at that committal stage relies on these two to to find that there was enough evidence to send Rolf 
for the for the murder trial. And uh, yeah, and then we we get into what happened here now. For some reason, Alpert doesn't appear at the trial. So he's at the committal and he gives his evidence via, you know, Zoom or whatever he did that on. And uh, and the judge takes that. Now, I've requested, and as of Thursday night here, I do not have a copy of the uh, reasons for decision that Judge John Birch had handed down. It was suppressed at the time because yep. it was going to the trial. So I've requested that. I haven't got that yet. I'm hoping to get that sometime Friday. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting now because, I mean, look, anyone who covered that and who read about that knew that those two guys were the main reasons that this happened. So why then does the prosecution not call Jeff Elpert, this American expert, criminologist? Yeah. Why not? And and so I, I went to the DPP today because we'll have we'll have another story about that coming out. Um, and I just said that I've got one question for you. Why wasn't he used? If he was in the committal, then why wasn't he brought in for the trial? Yeah. And I haven't heard anything back again as of Thursday night. Uh, but we know a little bit more now about Andrew Barham. Now, remember, this is the guy who at the trial, at the Supreme Court trial, murder trial, said that he had, you know, five black belts and that he knows Kung Fu. And, uh, you know, I've was, seen Jackie Chan movies as well, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this guy, like he, yeah. Anyway. So, you know, and we, we, we had heard things about his training. So now another thing that you need to know about Andrew Barham is that he was a trainer at the police college for a very long time. Right. And you remember the police college until, our own- until recently. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. police Academy. The real version, real life here in the NT. You remember? Yeah. We, um, the NT Independent, we picked up a media award for our coverage of that. We had yeah. an internal report that showed just massive failings in the college that they didn't know who was being trained by whom, uh, who was graduating. Remember, there was one thing where they said somebody passed who hadn't even started yet or something like that. I mean, it was a joke. It was an absolute embarrassment yeah. to the Northern Territory Police Force. Yeah. Uh, I believe that was Hightower. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was just, it was bad. I mean, this had made national news. You had the Australian Civil Liberties Association commenting on this stuff, saying, like, this could, like, if these cops aren't trained properly, that presents a very serious risk to the community. Not to mention the fact that if the charges could be dropped because these guys don't even know how to read or write properly, that was another thing that they found that. You know, they basic basic literacy and numeracy skills were lacking. Anyway, the, the grand poobah of all of that is this ninja by the name of Andrew Barham. Uh, now, Barham, you know, a lot of I've spoken to a lot of people about this, a lot of sources, people at, uh, in police who know him and said, yeah, look, you know, he wasn't he wasn't the most respected guy with everybody in the in the college and, and elsewhere, uh, you know, and, and, you know, take that for what it's worth, I guess. But. I guess when you go in and you're testifying against uh, another officer here, you would think that you would maybe know a little bit more of what you were talking about. And we'll, we'll get into that now because, yeah, so the story that we ran here was his line, or this was another cop's line. This is a murder charge. The less conflicts, the better. That one. Yeah. That's so. handy. Yeah, the internal police emails that we have show that the prosecution star witness at the Rolf trial had a, quote, conflict of interest. So, yeah, it was this guy, Andrew Barham, uh, an internal email from. Now, this is the top cop in charge of professional standards, a guy named Danny Bacon. 
And he writes to them in Operation Charwell and he says, uh, no, guys, this uh, Barham's not suitable to provide evidence due to conflict of interest. He, uh, there was uh, two cops, Bruce Porter and Martin Dole, had written to Bacon to say, uh, look, we want Barham in on this. And at this point, um, Barham's not at the college anymore. He's actually working under Bacon and professional standards. So that meant that he had to be removed from that department uh, to go to do this operation, uh, Charwell, to build the case, the murder case against Rolf. So they say, yeah, we think he's a good guy due to his history as the officer in charge of the police college, which now is, is humorous, uh, including at the time Constable Rolf was trained, though we still don't know who actually trained Zach Rolf. That's <laughs> That's just nobody knows. Nobody actually knows. But most likely, it maybe it might have been him. Yeah. Um, he has had oversight of the police's operational safety and tactics training uh, systems for a while. And he had been the NT's representative on, quote, many forums relating to use of force. I don't know what that means, really. Like, I don't know how many forums yeah. they're putting on about that. Anyway, Commander Bacon was adamant that Barham was not suitable because he was too entrenched in the anti-police force. I find that he is not suitable to provide evidence. Bacon wrote in an email dated November 20th, 2019. That's a week after uh, the charge was laid. I state this on the basis that all these reasons raised by Porter in the email above uh, would place him in a perceived conflict of interest in relation to providing this report for Operation Charwell. It perhaps could be mitigated if we were dealing with matters on a discipline level, but this matter is a criminal murder charge. And I think the less conflicts we have in place surrounding expert evidence, the better it will be for the integrity of the file. So it it certainly sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, look, we've got a guy here who's saying, (laughs) let's do this right because, (laughs) you know, and I, and I thought about this long and hard as I'm reading this stuff is okay. So, the fact that he identifies that there's a conflict of interest and conflict of interest is just that he's too close to everything. He's too yeah. internal. Yeah. He's been a, a, you know, an animal of the, uh, the machine here, the police machine for yeah. far too long. So whether he comes out and clears Rolf, basically yeah. no one's going to buy that. But then he comes yeah. out and does what he does, which is be critical of Rolf and say that he didn't act pr- appropriately during the uh, situation with yeah. Walker people aren't going to buy that either. So, you know, you got a conflict, just mitigate it, handle it, end it. And and in fact, what, what Bacon said was that Barham could function, you know, as a conduit for an individual interstate expert to assist and guide them to relevant policies and procedures in the NT. Uh, mm. But, you know, it was fraught with increased risk, both the coronial and criminal trial to have him provide a local report on his own which he then goes and does, despite Bacon recommending an independent interstate expert be brought in with the operation. And I saw some other emails that they went to New South Wales and New South Wales looked at things and say, yeah, no, we're not getting involved in this. No, thanks. We're out. Yeah, yeah. Because because most sane people and police who have been there would have seen that video and said, yeah, no, this is self-defense. This is the guy stabbed him. He shot him and then he shot him while he was attacking his partner. Like, this is an open and shut. See you later case. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, they pursued with Operation Charwell. So Barham then not only provides information, he's then, you know, seconded away from professional standards into uh, this Operation Charwell. And he, he gives them information for their in- internal investigation. Let's just keep that 
term going to. It was always done internally. There was no independent right. investigation here. This yeah. is a group of people who had charged for all very quickly. And then their whole function and purpose was to prove that murder charge that they were right to, to charge him. So, but not only did he provide that, he then became the prosecution's star witness at the Supreme Court murder trial in the absence of any internet, interstate or international witnesses by the prosecution that would be typical in a trial like this. And so when we get back to that question, what happened to Jeff Elpert, the American uh, criminologist who was there at the committal to make sure that the Rolf stood trial, but then wasn't at the trial. So I'm going to yep. try and get you an answer for that. I don't have that right now, exactly, <laughs> but I think we'll be getting close to it here over the weekend with some stories we're doing. Um, so what happened, though, at the thing? Now, this gets really interesting, Pete. So Barham testifies at the murder trial that Rolf did not follow his training during the incident and that he had failed to maintain a proper distance after engaging with Walker inside the house in Uendamo. And this is where he's trying to ID him because Walker had lied about right. his name. And then he had a photo and he said, well, let me see here, just stand here. And then that's when the scissors get pulled out. He gets stabbed a shot. So, yeah. but, but Barham said, no, 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 he, he you know, he didn't. He didn't clear the house properly. He didn't. He got too close to uh, Walker. He suggested Rolf had prematurely disengaged the holster device on his firearm after entering the home. Uh, Barham, uh, yeah, who told the court he had five black belts in martial arts, ultimately suggested that Rolf should have put his gun away after the first shot and engaged Walker with his hands while he was struggling with Ebel. I don't know if you've ever right. heard of that, Pete. You shoot a guy yeah. and then so you say, shoot okay, him and you wrestle him. Yeah, and yeah. Kung Fu, hand-to-hand combat. Wow. Uh, now, I mean, look, if that's everybody. the training, that's the training, but uh, I would have <laughs> that, thought that's unusual. Look, I can tell you that's not the training, and I can tell you that other people have told us that have been critical of Barham being trained and saying he does this, this stuff instead of the proper police tactics. And this hand-to-hand combat stuff, I mean, Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, that, that makes no sense because they're taught I mean, to shoot, to incapacitate the threat. If you've got five black belts, I mean, you want to use them. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. But then, you know, maybe do that at after hours. I think he actually ran a, a mixed martial arts and MMA uh, right. uh, club in town. So, yeah, you right. know, do that on the evening and the weekends. But, you know, you teach proper tactics when you're there. Anyway, yeah. he says this stuff. Um, I do find that highly unusual that you you would be – it would be suggested – that you are to engage your weapon yeah. once, and then uh, you can you can finish everything off by hand after that. Yeah, like are you going to put it back in, or you just throw it aside, yeah, yeah. and then say, "All right," and you roll up your sleeves. Like this is right out of Police Academy. This is uh, well, a ridiculous I think in, thing. I think in Police Academy, that's the bit when they go, "Damn, I'm out of bullets," and then that's when the gun <laughs> gets thrown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So look, yeah, so this gets so bizarre, though, because he does say this. Now, of course, the training is to shoot to incapacitate the threat, which appears to be what Rolf did. Um, So you don't shoot one and then and then engage in hand to hand combat. Anyway, (laughs) that evidence was completely torn apart by the defense team's expert. Now, the defense Rolf's defense team brought in former Australian Federal Police Special Operations veteran Ben McDivitt. He said uh, that Rolf was, in fact, following proper training known to police all over the world, uh, where he fired the second and third shots, and that he, quote-unquote, didn't understand Sergeant Barham's testimony. So McDevitt is a respected guy here, special ops with AFP. He says, I again say Sergeant Barham's suggestion is a ludicrous statement. 
McDevitt right. told the court, is just not in accordance with the training or with the use of force model. I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, and and that in itself is a pretty good uh, a pretty good comeback, really. I mean, you, yeah. you you could go in and just throw you know haymakers left, right, and center, but just saying I really don't understand what he's <laughs> suggesting is is a pretty yeah. clear way of saying, man, what are you doing? Yeah, from a respected guy who understands how this yeah. goes down. So then questions are, look, but I remember reading that story at the time that that day that Barron testified and, you know, the headlines all were, um, you know, Rolf didn't follow proper procedure. Rolf didn't right. obey training. And so yeah. you think, wow, okay. And you're reading this and you're like, huh? Okay, so what's going on here? But then the next day, McDevitt comes up and he just, yeah, annihilates that. And so then you're like, okay, so he did follow proper protocol um yeah and it was argued throughout the case of course the walker was a low-level threat at the time the second and third shots were fired because he was in the process of being restrained by officer adam uh ebel on a mattress ebril however mcdevitt told the court walker remained a potentially lethal threat throughout the three-shot sequence and was more dangerous once constable ebril was arresting was wrestling with him on the ground he said i've seen hundreds of ground struggles taught them for years and things can change incredibly quickly mcdivitt said one person can be in a dominant position then half a second later they're not yeah um so yeah so that's that was that and clear that by the outcome of this that the jury understood what mcdivitt was saying and took him at higher value than they did with with barham's testimony so, yeah, looking back at this, we, we see how kind of it appears desperate the prosecution then becomes uh, to have used Barham um, while they know full well that what he's saying is ludicrous, as McDevitt says. But for them to use that was because they couldn't get anybody else. So even back earlier on, we've seen emails where they were talking about using Barham and Kirk Panuto, your mate, detective acting superintendent Kirk Panuto. <laughs> Uh, from what was it, Brooklyn Nine Nine or something like that? NYPD, I think Law and Order. I think there's a- NYPD Blue, Blue Law and Order, CSI, one of those. Yeah, Detective. Should Benito. be on all of them, to be honest. <laughs> I think I fact, honestly think it is. <laughs> in fact, I was going to say earlier, and I don't want to make light of what is some pretty serious situations, but yeah, you know, I was thinking before when you were talking about the the ninety minute, you know, sum things up and and lay the charges. I was thinking. This is probably showing my age, but I'm sure Sipowitz was able to wrap things up in 60 minutes every week. That's right. Yeah. 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 And everything all just came nice and neat together. Tied up yep. with the Perfectly the on time. And, and I think that's what they were hoping for here, and it didn't work yeah. out that way. So getting back to that, right? So so um, Panuto says he disagrees with Bacon's assessment of Barham, stating in another email that they had already sourced subject matter experts at a much higher level. Uh, and then Barham's background uh, that would inform the reports. And then what yeah. happened to those people? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's only it was only Jeff Alpert who gave evidence, and that was during the committal. He testified, similar to uh, Barham, that the second and third shots were unreasonable. However, Alpert was not called to give evidence at the Supreme Court trial, with the prosecution relying solely on Barham's quote-unquote expert evidence, which was rejected by the jury clearly. Uh, yeah. And then we get back into how quickly they pursued that matter. So that's where we're at now. And it's like, well, you know, how, how did they explain this? How did they explain how they went about investigating this and then pursuing this afterwards? At what point should they have said, we don't have a case here? 
basically what the judge yeah. told the jury at the end of the trial. They've not made their case, but they should have realized this a long time ago and really ended all of this. But I mean, how much how much time and effort went into this? I mean, years, millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, um, correct. Yeah. A, a couple of things that are troubling for me out of this, just in what you've said, you know, over the last five or ten minutes, involve a couple of points. One, you know, this this potentially poor level of training at the police academy that no one really knows what level of training Zach Rolf got, where it was done, who signed off on it, and mm-hmm. the fact that they don't know whether this guy was involved or not. Aren't these troubling facts? Absolutely. Yeah. I I have no idea. I mean, this is just clown town stuff to pursue it. To yeah. continue to do this when when these things could have all come up in the court. But look, you know, I don't know. The defense had their strategy that, you know, I think there's a whole lot of stuff that didn't come out in court that could have. Um, and that's potentially extremely embarrassing for the NT police force and, and the executive. Uh, so all of this stuff still is coming out. I mean, yeah, we had this story up yesterday. Like I said, we'll have another one into, uh, into Alpert exactly. And why, yeah, why he, he appears at the committal, but not at the, at the trial. I, I, that's just really strange to me. So yeah, we've put out questions about that. We'll have more information. We have some other emails that we're still going through, uh, that relate to all of that. So yeah, this, this is going to just keep raising things, raising yeah. questions here. And then you've got, yeah, the police commissioner still thinks it's okay to be in the job and is hoping that everything is just, you know, calm down and nobody's asking for his head anymore. But, you know, he still doesn't get away from the fact that the members are still pissed off. And the more they read about all of this stuff, and I mean, these stories, when we put them out, they go wild, like thousands, tens. Yeah, I can imagine. Days. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's still that interest out there, and I still think that nothing's going away. I mean, Chalker and Gunner can hide behind the ICAC all they want and wait for that um, to be done. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the public just has an expectation. Like, you know, Woody wrote an analysis on the weekend, similar to what we were talking about last week, about how the position that these people are in, chief minister, police commissioner, are far more important than the individuals currently in the those positions and these guys don't seem to get that they don't yeah, respect that they, they it's all about themselves and what they can do to maintain their jobs instead of realizing that the respect of the office comes first the public's confidence in in that in those positions comes first and so yeah th- they haven't done it uh woody also brought up the fact that and it's worth repeating that um and we may have touched on it briefly before but the icac's investigating remember uh Matthew Grant, who was the general manager of the ICAC. Now, back when Fleming, uh, what did he do? He uh, organized a Black Lives Matter rally himself uh, down in Alice Springs. Now, he didn't organize it, but he showed up and he went to this rally and he said that about, you know, corrupt conduct, whatever. Um, And he had to kind of be stood aside from having any oversight into this investigation. Now, I've seen documents and one is the ICAC inspector's report where the ICAC inspector Bruce McClintock writes that Matthew Grant was then supposed to come in and provide oversight of this investigation. That did not happen. Riches, Michael Riches, the new commissioner, said earlier uh, that, that, that the office of the ICAC had no further interaction with anything past November 15th, I think, which is a day or two after the charge. But this investigation was going on. 
and they were supposed to have oversight of them. And I've seen documents with flowcharts that show them at the top with other bodies of, okay, these are the ones who are overseeing this whole thing. But the ICAC did not do what they were supposed to do. Yeah. And, that, and that was on Matthew Grant. And then Matthew Grant goes and takes a job as like chief financial officer with the department, with the police and fire and rescue emergency services. Yeah. Um, it's not a good look. And then from what we understand, that's extended. So does the ICAC then look at himself at his own office here and is either current general manager, or former general manager, wherever he is, I guess. It's hard to tell if he still has that position as general manager of the ICAC or if he's chief financial officer over at NT Police. But questions need to be asked in the public interest here, um, and the public would want to know that. Why didn't the office of the ICAC provide oversight of this investigation that I'm just, I was just talking about all the holes in there, but the brief yeah. evidence that was put together and how they then went about just to prove that he was guilty of murder without obviously looking at any other options. Where were they on that? They dropped the ball on that. So can they even investigate or do we need this, uh, a real public inquiry with people from interstate leading it? Yeah. Uh, it's just, it feels mess. that way, doesn't right. it? Yeah. 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 Uh, only in this content, I said, yeah, in any, I think we said in any respectable jurisdiction, I mean, these people would realize what was at stake here is far more important than their own little positions and their paychecks. Um, but anyway, they just want the public to not have any faith in the systems here. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's where we're at. Yeah. And look, this is only a small nitpicking point, but you also brought up um, in that in regards to uh, the, the expert witness uh, for the defense talking about that, you know, the use of force, is taught the same way everywhere in the world. And uh, I, I did have to think for a second, well, do we know it's taught the same way? In no, the no. And look, I was paraphrasing there. Sorry, Pete, that wasn't yeah. a direct thing. Oh, in the okay, territory. Okay. Yeah, and in yeah. the territory. Well, yeah. yeah, my God, no, we just don't know because the, those standards aren't met. You know, that, that yeah. group that, that certifies colleges could not get in and properly certify this place. Yeah. So they really had no idea what was being taught. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it's just crazy that all of these things you see start to come together and you see how everything fit together and what a real dysfunctional system it is. And then this yes. happens where it's a terrible tragedy, you know, Absolutely. And, and but then what are the police response to that? I mean, when does that and we know the coronial look at some of that police response. But, you know, like what he pointed out, too, I mean, yeah, the Aboriginal community in Uendamu, um, they must be frustrated with the whole process too yeah. saying when are we going to get answers about how this happened you know there were things said in the lead up to the arrest by people by police down there that you know still hasn't come out um and they're there they've got to be frustrated and so yeah do we do this public inquiry where everything is just examined about this but if we did i'm not the gunner would ever approve that for that very reason it would show just how shambolic and dysfunctional um these systems are so instead it's better for, for people to use their imaginations i guess and then really mm -hmm. understand how broken everything is here but and to have that that lack of confidence i mean as a government that's what you that's the most important crucial thing is that that it's perceived that everything's happening properly that the public can have faith in its institutions and yet again he's eroded it and not only that i mean he's just destroying it at this point and doesn't want to repair that in any way so you know yeah this is where we're at 
Yeah, yeah. Look, um, we could probably go on about that all week, and uh, and next week too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we will. I'm sure there'll be more next week. But look, let's move on to the next story, and um, this is in relation to uh, a coronial inquiry, and the coroner has found that a feud between Paddy Moriarty and a neighbour is likely the cause of his death, and it's been referred to the DPP. Yes, so now one in, in, of in what must be said is a is a case that has a lot of bizarre facts. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh yeah, and let me just start that. So our coverage this week was uh was reported on for us by uh so this inquest. So the inquest started in 2018 and then stopped the pause to resume this week in Catherine. Uh we were very fortunate to get uh, Kylie Stevenson, Walkley Award-winning journalist who I used to work with at the NT News, and uh, her writing partner, Caroline Graham. Now, both of these ladies have written the book, the quintessential book, on the Patty Moriarty case. It's called Larima, A Missing Man, an Eyeless Croc, in an Opac Town of 11 People Who Mostly Hate Each Other. So this followed wow. from, yeah, so this is a, an excellent book. That's a smaller version of Darwin then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. And so, you know, and Kylie had uh, produced that uh, uh, award-winning uh, a podcast, Lost in Larima, which is just fantastic. And if nobody's heard that, please go listen to it. And I, I think that they've done an update to it now after this. So anyway, really fortunate to have those two writing for us uh, and covering the, this week. So yeah, so he, he it just gets kind of crazy. So before the, the he hands down the findings today, uh, the coroner, uh, what happens yesterday is he, he calls some more witnesses and things get very strange. And in fact, there's a secret recording played uh, at the inquest. Yeah. Now, this is a recording of a man singing about the murder of Patty Moriarty. Uh it was it was very strange. So uh, I guess on December 28th, so now uh, Moriarty goes missing, and we all know that story. I take it about, you know, from Larima, who left the pub. Uh, they thought he went home, never saw him again. And also his dog Kelly was with him. Uh, so that was on December 16, 2017. On December 28th, police were granted a warrant to install a recording device in the Larima home of Owen Laurie who worked as a full-time gardener, live-in gardener for Fran Hodgetts, who owned the, the tea shop there and made the meat pies. Yeah. And <laughs> her and uh, Patty fought over the meat pies and other things. Now, for some reason, Fran Hodgetts has a personal live-in gardener. <laughs> yeah, I, I must admit, it did um, take me back to about the 1820s when I read that. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is bizarre. So anyway, the police back then, they get a, a warrant to to put a listening device into Owen Laurie's home. And in the tapes played before coroner Greg Kavanaugh, a man's voice is heard singing and strumming a guitar with lyrics including, quote, I killerated old Patty. I struck him on the effing head and killerated the bastard, basherated him. And uh, another one was, he's a good bloke. He's terrible. No wonder I effing belted him. Uh, there's more, I hit him with an F and hammer. Uh, you know, they didn't find the hammer. They can't get me for anything. Um, just my, haunting. My, my haunting. favorite part, 
if you can refer to that as favourite because you're absolutely right. Just just the words themselves. Look, I'd be lying if I said I didn't laugh when I read it, but I only laughed when I read it because it was so graphic and so it's like it's something that you'd see in a movie, right, in a wacko yeah. movie. Yeah, but, a very but, bizarre one. But to top that, when it when it was played, doesn't sound like me, was the response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. There, yeah, I mean, look, there were other ones. Smacked them on the effing nostrils with my claw hammer. Smacked them on the nostrils. Book, book, book. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Right yeah. But uh, it seems uh, old mate um, also uh, had a bit of a, um, a uh, tense relationship with his landlord. And uh, at one point, they, they were in mediation in relation to uh, how, how things weren't working between them. And I, I love the outcome of the mediation, that, oh, um, that, that um, if, if one of them saw the other one in the garden, no. that uh, if one waved, then it was <laughs> part of the mediation that the other had to reply with a wave. <laughs> yeah, I did read that, didn't hear yeah, it was it very was, uh, <laughs> unusual. I would have thought. Yeah, and the and the whole the whole theater just continues in Laramar, yes. right? Like this. Is, so some of them have died, and 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 guy, some of the main people involved at the time, I know them, have passed away, and that's why they they tried to get this all done as quick as they could. Um, yeah. Now, just getting back to Owen Laurie though, and his song for a minute. So after the after each tape was played to Laurie this week, uh, he then. I think at one point he denied that it was him. And then at one point he said that he did, he wanted to exercise his right against self-incrimination and remain silent. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's at odds with the previous statement. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. So, um, then, then Fran Hodgetts had come up too. uh, she was asked about, uh, the, yeah, the longstanding feud, (laughs) but, The pair would smile at one another and wave if the other way first, but limited interactions to necessity. So her and uh, Patty uh, were in a big, big feud here. Uh, now, this other guy shows up, right? Now, he's a laborer out of Pine Creek, a guy named Wayne Ledwich. And he gave evidence that in late 2017, he overheard a conversation between his friend, Brian Roberts, and Miss Hodgetts in which Hodgetts offered him $10,000 to get rid of Patty Moriarty. Hodgetts, so on the stand, denied knowing Roberts, who is now deceased. I never, ever, ever, ever paid anyone to bump Patty off. She said I had money, yes, because I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't go out, but I work hard. Uh, Ledwich had also given evidence that he believed Roberts may have been involved in the 2001 death of Peter Falconio, yeah, so I did, just I did read a, that with interest. Yeah, let's get a lot crazier here. <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense. For which, of course, Bradley Murdoch was convicted in 2005. But the officer in charge of the case, the detective sergeant, and Matt which, Allen. Which he man- maintains his innocence, I might add. Yes, yeah, Brad Murdoch. Yeah, yeah Bradley Murdoch. Yeah. Does, yeah. Uh, so Matt Allen, the detective in charge, told the inquest there was no evidence to connect Roberts to Moriarty's disappearance, nor the Falconio, Falconio case. Of course not. And I believe there was then a, a psychic truck driver who also showed yes. up, but he wasn't using his psychic powers on this case. He was just right given on. some yeah. 
terrestrial facts about it. <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ, the whole thing is just, it's just a wild story and it just seems to get crazier and crazier. Now, today, I guess, I don't know if some of the mystery or the mystique of the whole thing is gone. We're getting back to how you started this with that story that, that we ran this morning. But Greg uh, Kavanaugh here in his final case as coroner before he retires, he uh, he did say that he has determined that Patty Moriarty was killed. And in fact, that his neighbor or his feud with his neighbor was likely the cause of, of the death and the disappearance. Uh, yeah, he said, in my opinion, Patty and his dog were killed in the context of and likely due to the ongoing feud he had with his nearest neighbor. He likely died on the evening of the 16th of December, 2017. Now that's last evening that he was seen uh, at his house, uh, you know, his, his wallet and cash were there. His hat was there. He had uh, a chicken in the, in the microwave, a choke that he got at Woolies. So yeah, it was all very, so look, that this is now, you know, years in the making, but the coroner is now saying that, that he died and that it was clearly uh, likely related to that ongoing blood feud that he was having in town. Um, now, he's also uh, uh, put that to the DPP. Uh, the police also came out today to reiterate the fact that it remains an open case. There's still a $250,000 uh, uh reward for information leading yeah right yeah so that's way more than the ten thousand. yeah yeah the old guy allegedly wanted that's right Uh, does greg kavanaugh get that if he uh does a successful referral yeah i'm not sure uh i wouldn't think yeah i wouldn't (laughs) think but he's in retirement now so who knows in his findings uh kavanaugh did give a brief history of moriarty's background talking about him being born in limerick island in 47 moved to australia when he was 18 and had no known relatives he said moriarty moved to larima from daily waters in 2008 and on the night in question had ridden his quad bike home from the larima hotel where he was a regular fixture put his wallet on the table his hat the dog food in the dog bowl got his own meal out of the freezer and then went outside with the dog uh, Kevin said, quote, there is no evidence as to where he went. However, it's my view. It's likely that the new plants at Franz Place were of some attraction to him. Now that had come out that the plants had been poisoned over at, at Franz yes, true. at some point. So um, now keep in mind, because we've talked about this, the Coroner's Act and how, you know, uh, the coroner is not actually permitted to include a finding or a comment that a person may be guilty of an offense. Remember, it's, it's, it's ironic that we were talking about that just recently as the chief minister was trying to say, oh, yeah, the coronial into the Walker yeah, yeah. Rolf matter will, will clear everybody. And it's like, well, no, they can't <laughs> actually make any findings against you or the commissioner yeah. on this. So what 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 Greg Kavanaugh did here was he said, however, I will refer this investigation to the commissioner of police and the DPP, which, again, is part of of in that act. Uh, for I believe offenses may well have been committed in connection with the death of Patrick Joseph Moriarty. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah. And then following the inquest, Detective Sergeant Matt Allen said it was a once in a generation case. Murder investigations are challenging, particularly without a body. He said the case doesn't get closed until it is solved. We need to find Patty. He reminded the public that the $250,000 reward still stands. 
amazing, really, too, when you consider that, uh, as you said before, the population of the town's only 11 people. So it. Uh, well, it was 12. Remember, they got a cross oh, okay, out yeah, on the yeah, cover of the book, but yeah, then Batty yeah, left. Of course. So, <laughs> disappeared. And down and to now, 11 now. Yeah, now the coroner's determined he's dead. So, yeah, yeah it's um, just a, a real crazy story. And, to, and I, I still don't think we know all of the details of what actually, how this all yeah. transpired. Was it a hit here for $9,000, $10,000? Uh, I mean, what yeah. drives somebody to do that? And, of course, Fran Hodgins and her family are denying that, that she did that, um, still saying that she's innocent. She's not in the town anymore. She came via Zoom, I think, from Melbourne or somewhere. Um, yeah, right. So anyway, it, it kind of closes a bit of the mystery on this one, but there's still unsettled things here that uh, yeah. we still may never know. And there's got to be a movie shortly. Well, yeah, you know, sh- and I don't think. Surely to go. Yeah, no, Kylie said that on, on ABC Radio. So not, you know, they she had, uh, after the podcast, been HBO had optioned it. Yeah, right. This whole story, and I, but I think they were gonna yeah. like set it in like Florida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I'm know, and that's, some backwater in uh, in yeah. the US. But I think, but I think that that option uh, expired. I think Kylie was telling me so. It's out there. Somebody should really make this into something yeah. because, um, yeah, and and like just follow her book and her podcast because it's just terrific. And if nobody's listened to Lost in Irma, go listen to that. That's like the best podcast. Um, next to your guys, of course. Oh. <laughs> just gonna say, Chris, uh, equal first, thanks. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, and the book Larima too. It's really good about just yeah. all the history of this town and how it came to be, and how it was like such a bustling place at one point too. Yeah, yeah. The military was in and out, and the train was going through there. Yeah. And then it, yeah, it's just a real fascinating story. Absolutely. Okay, good recommendation. Lost in Larima podcast. I'll uh, I'll look that up myself. Yeah. Now, uh, finally. We've, we've gone through vaccination mandates. We've gone through lockdowns. We've gone through mask mandates and, and, and everything else. And now the vaccine pass has been scrapped for entertainment venues across the NT, effective immediately. Yeah, was a bit of a surprise announcement there by Gunner, considering that, you know, they had gone through the steps and the hassle, really, of yeah. uh, of making these, you know, these silly determinations. Remember, I think we talked about that, that you could go to footy at TIO Stadium, but you couldn't order a beer. Yeah. You get in line <laughs> for food. Yeah. But you just could not get in line for a beer. They would not serve you if you if you didn't yeah. have your vaccine passport showing that you were double dosed. Um or quadruple or whatever the, the number Haggy's getting up five times or something in a year. Anyway, they go through a lot of process here to, and it just did not make sense. And, and I think we were the first ones who had that story because that was one of the things that they did. They quietly uh, changed those health directions without putting an announcement out about it. But Woody had found that and he did the first story about that. And then everybody's up in arms saying, well, this doesn't even make sense. So now we've got, um, We've got this where uh, they then just basically scrapped it and said, nope, Territorians will no longer have to show proof of vaccination in order to attend licensed venues across the NT. Uh, So, yeah, it it took effect from Tuesday morning after weeks of various changes that have been criticized for lack of cohesion. 
comes less, it was even less than a week after they had altered those uh, directions to allow unvaccinated people to enter stadiums for sporting events, but prohibited them from buying beer. Uh, now, they said the territory check-in app will remain in place because we all love that so much. And if anybody's yeah. used that in the last in, two months, three months. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that became we, a joke after that. And we know that no one's monitoring it after the last bungle. Yeah, so. yeah, that's what I mean. So why use it? But anyway, they say it's still there. And that's the other big part of this. I think that people were thinking, okay, so now what does this mean about the vaccine mandate rules? You get rid of this. And now he's not saying he's, he's not uh, flagging any changes to that. He did, though, the chief minister flagged the prospect of a mask mandate being implemented in the Darwin region and even in the coming days of cases of COVID-19 continue to rise. So on the one hand, he's allowing unvaccinated people to do anything they want. On the other, he's saying, oh, but we might have to do a yeah. mask mandate again. I'm not sure yeah. that that's clear. That's making any sense to anybody because, yeah, it, it just isn't. Um, he, yeah. he had said that the numbers were increasing in Darwin. Uh, and so, yeah, it might, they might need it. Okay. I, I'm not sure about that. But, uh, you know, th this was seen as, um, as being done to change, to, to, to allow unvaccinated people basically into uh licensed establishments after a lot of pressure put on them um, by the public were pointing out the hypocrisy and inconsistencies of it all and also uh uh hospitality nt who's who's really remember we were talking about yeah, correct. there yeah really ramping up the the lines there on gunner and saying and look he was right he said why in the hell are frontline are, are hospitality workers being forced to act as frontline covid19 cops yeah, exactly. So he's saying people could come in from interstate, not be vaccinated and not have an issue, go wherever they want, only when they get to a pub. Yeah. Was somebody supposed to be there to say, wait a second, you're not vaccinated and you're not getting in here. Get yeah, out of yeah. here, right? Like, how That's in it. the hell did they think that that was a good idea? So, so the pressure was put on them. They've done that. Uh, Alex Bruce welcomed the government scrapping of the passport which they've been calling on for months. Uh, he's saying, we're looking forward to a cracking dry season now. We're looking forward to welcoming tourists and locals to our venues. I think it was with a smile instead of, you know, that's the whole hospitality thing. And I heard Jason Hanna talking this week about that is we we're supposed to be there smiling and saying, what can we do? How can we make you stay yeah. with us better? Instead of saying, no, wait a second, show us your yeah, documents. Proof of entry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so this was seen, I think, by everybody. I don't think anybody was complaining about this uh, being changed. And then again, though, Gunner has to hang on to something and, and then started the fear-mongering about the Omicron BA2 variant, saying the caseload has been creeping up slightly, but only in the Darwin area. And a mask mandate may be called again if the caseload keeps going up. It would be in Darwin only. We may need to look at a mask mandate at some stage in the future. Uh, yeah, don't know about that. You know, when we get into this now, the, the, the opposition, of course, came out that day and took some shots and said that, uh, the chaos of COVID control has been on full display this month with shambolic and contradictory rules casting doubt in the minds of territorians, whether this is the best health advice or poor policy and government desperation. That's, uh, health spokesman Bill Yan saying that uh, scrapping the VAX pass makes total sense and it should have been done weeks ago. How has the chief health officer's advice changed so dramatically in just a fortnight? Uh, he said, he went on to say, if I was a betting man, I'd say this latest shambles is a gunner government special. And if it was genuine health advice, then that's pretty scary. 
it was about unfettered power and control to implement mandates and other measures for another few years without requiring any detailed report on the evidence and the advice. And of course, that uh, is about the uh, powers that uh, the government introduced last week in Parliament yeah. uh, for the CHO. For two years, he can basically do whatever he wants. A, a, an unelected public servant who answers to politicians only uh, yeah. and then has all this power to come and search your home and do all kinds of things. So, so that's crazy now. The other part, I think what most people were interested in with this, like I said earlier, was does this show that the, you know, that the vaccine mandate might be ending sometime soon. Now, according to the, yeah. you know, when they, when they rolled over that for another 90 days, the public health emergency declaration, well, that kept the CHO's mandate in place. And what they want to do now is because there's no actual public health emergency, as we've seen, there's absolutely no public health emergency right now, but they want to pass that legislation to give him the power so that he can operate as if there is a public health emergency, even though there is no public health emergency for two years. Um, so, so the question then was, well, but, you know, is he going to scrap the mandate here by before April 22nd, which was a deadline imposed, um, for public servants and other workers in certain areas to get the, their third uh, dose of the vaccine. Now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. I saw the CLP, the government, I think files had said no, that they weren't looking at that at all. But again, they, they said that about this, about the vaccine passport a week before. So you never know. But I would say I think that the CLP made a very good point when they said, look at what's going on now here, an unvaccinated person can now do every single thing anybody else can except work. Yeah. And they're saying yeah. they're taking away people's livelihoods by this now, like this has happened. There was even a judge saying something similar that, look, the public health emergency is over. Yeah, you charge some people with some silly things when they were protesting, but yeah. we live in a society. And he said, I don't know why you're not vaccinated. That's your business, though. Um, we live in at least a forgiving enough society that we can look the other way at this stuff. You know, we made it to this point where this whole thing has been contained, COVID-19, um, and controlled in such a, in such a, an effective way that even when you get it, you're not getting it, um, that badly. I mean, of course, some people with pre-existing conditions, definitely it's, it's a tragedy when we hear about the deaths, yeah. usually people with other conditions. Um, but at what point do we say, okay, we are past this and let's stop inflicting this because it is about people's and, you know, some of those workers. Yeah. I mean, it's just that they were public servants. So they have to follow this, even though they're not really in those positions, put them in, in contact with vulnerable people yeah. or anything like that. And so, yeah, the CLP said, look, this is just completely contradictory to everything that we know now in Australian society to be able to, you know, have those freedoms of everybody else, except being able to work, which is what people need to do for their families. So I think yeah, reality has to come back at some point here, Pete, and, and they got to come back yeah, I think to the so. real world. Yeah. And I saw during the week, unless I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw that uh, in South Australia, public servants who are unvaccinated yeah. are now allowed to go back to work. So yeah, yeah, and yeah, Woody had a story too about that. Um, but yet they 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 persevered here with that and said, wrote a letter to all the public servants and make sure you tell us what you're going to do right now so we can plan ahead. Yeah. And it was like <laughs> the same. It was just like a day after what what SA did, which was complete yeah. opposite. So yeah. I think common sense will prevail in the end. Um, 
But who knows what these guys look, if you're going to pass that legislation to give yourself or to give your public servant who answers directly to you and nobody else and not the public, um, yeah. those kind of powers for two years, you're really capable of anything. So I don't know, like that, that was just, that's just a crazy idea. And yeah. if they're still going to pursue that, I mean, geez, that, that, that's really troubling. That's really troubling. It is. It is. But, um, I've done this before. Surprising. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see how that plays out. Now, um, usually at this point, Chris, I would uh, go to Mick's job of the week, but um, I decided to do a variation of it this week Mm. because I received an email, and the email came from the Northern Territory Department of Industry. Tourism and trade. Oh, yeah. Sean lots, yeah. lots of different things in there about Singapore Airlines being back in the top end and yeah. a new data center for Dharma, which we know about, and all, these, <laughs> all these things. Yeah. And then at the bottom of the message, there was a little breakout and there was, an, there was a sort of young, attractive nurse-looking type girl having a laugh with an old lady who looks like she's in a nursing home. There was... A lady having a beer overlooking what looks like Cullum Bay, and then two young people who've caught what looks like massive barramundis standing in a boat. Mm. And it talks about the work stay play incentive. And if ever you wanted to know how out of touch these people are, the heading work stay play advent, uh, incentive has straight underneath it, are you experiencing workforce shortages? And so I'm a bit upset that Leon's not here because he'd be absolutely cringing at this because mm-hmm. it says eligible local businesses can register to receive a one-off payment of $1,000 to oh. offer each new employee who relocates to the territory for work. And I thought to myself, well, we've talked about this before, how private enterprise are losing staff yeah. to government because government can offer twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars more. Yeah. What the hell do they think one thousand dollars is gonna do <laughs> to incentivize a business when the average removal fees would be about ten thousand dollars to get, you know, home furniture from down south up here. Are they kidding themselves? Yeah, look it didn't work for the boundless possible uh, yes. campaign and well, that was five grand wasn't it yeah 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 that was better than that so it must be some of the change was left over here that wasn't claimed i don't i think four yeah. people claim that money anyway remember the number right. uptake on that was yeah, yeah ridiculous and this is too i mean look this is the government self-promoting and saying they're doing something for industry but when yeah. you look at it practically a thousand dollar redos isn't really gonna cut it for anybody and it's not helping anything what's gonna ha- help i guess is if um, you know, people are allowed to come back in and everything goes back to normal in the way in which it should. And and we hope that we can attract these, uh, the tourists back here. But I think everybody, yeah, mm. wants to get out and moving again. And we know that the industry here has been hurting a long time. And it's, yeah, it's almost insulting to suggest that, yeah, that, that this thousand dollars is going to get people here. I think we talked about this. There were some other measures they were doing too. Yeah, we did. Um, but there was nothing in there that was really groundbreaking. I mean, they were going to take ads out somewhere in england or something yeah. um yeah look i yeah i don't think it was anything rather than we were... spending tens of thousands of dollars on facebook promoting the place yeah. maybe they could uh, find a better way of doing it and 
putting that money into the incentives to get them because $1,000 is an insult to businesses. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah, they've got to start thinking and doing more and doing better than this for everybody who's just gone through two years, especially in that tourism sector and hospitality. Correct. Complete. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, let's hope that they come up with better ideas than that. But I don't, I, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't count on you're, that. <laughs> you're not holding your breath. No, no, right. as sad as it is. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, as usual, Matt, it's been great. And uh, it's just the two of us this week, but I'm sure the big fella will be back with us next week. Yeah, man, it's been fun, people. See you next week. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Weekends with Walshie back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.